You bled out the tear while the ravens watched Tough from the leavings on the hickory rock Tasted the wind and you changed your socks Red snow and the fallen sun Night at the cabin in the mountain hair With the blood smelling wood smoke in your hair Peasants frozen but we don't care You and I are The knives are dull and the whiskey's low Three miles to town over shifting snow Batteries, coffee in the used bookstore Bullets for the gun Out the dawn on the frozen lake To find fresh trout with a dinner plate Blankets on dry up but we can't wait You and I are Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right. It is me. And we have been listening to the song Winter Cabin, comma, 1992, from the Bright Against the Blue CD that is from The Dirt. Not the CD, but the name of the duo is from The Dirt. And the songwriter is a very good friend of mine. I like to call him a friend named Dan Kenny. He's based out of Frederick, Maryland. Uh, penned all the songs, played that nice Martin D28 that you can hear in the background. Well, actually, actually, it's not in the background. It's right front and center, and he's on the phone with me right now. Hi, Dan. Hey, Don. You know, you're one of the few people I who I know who are songwriters who really work at the craft. And when I say that, because I know that you attend lots of workshops, and you do hit the songwriter showcases, or you did before the pandemic, of course, you're an alumni of the Sunday Songwriters Series at the Frederick Coffee Company and also Brewer's Alley Monday Night Songwriter Series. And you've done many open mics, I think, with Rob Hinkle up in the Baltimore area. But you work at songwriting more than maybe the average songwriter does. 
Is that something that you, you, you've chosen to do, or is it just something that you do? Right. So um, I think that kind of changed for me in um, 2016. I, um, one of my favorite songwriters has always been Jonathan Bird. Yes. He's at Car- Carborough, North Carolina. Um, I saw him at the Frederick Coffee Company. He was splitting a bill with um, Cletus Kennelly. Mm-hmm. I think, and, and Lori Kelly, I think, um, and, uh, fantastic. And, um, I saw online somewhere that he was one of several songwriters doing a, you know, a songwriter workshop. And, uh, this was outside of Austin, little town, Wimberley, Texas. And I kind of threw it out there to the wife, like, Hey, wouldn't that be neat? And uh, she got me that for Christmas. Oh, cool! Yeah, so plane ticket and and um and signed me up for that. So I went down, and it was Jonathan Bird and Susan Gibson, who I hadn't heard of, but she wrote "Wide Open Spaces." That was her hit. Yeah, you know, for the Dixie Chicks. She's um I checked out a lot of her stuff, and she's great. And there there was um was it the studio called the Blue Rock? Beautiful beautiful uh, place and the owner Billy Crockett is quite a good songwriter himself anyway so there's you know there's 20 or so of us at this thing over three days and you know we would do group things and in-person things and we kind of went around the room like how do you write and did he get inspired and I remember saying something like well I wait for inspiration to strike and then I write and you know Jonathan Bird's like, well, how many songs do you get a year out of that? I'm like, well, like two. Right. And so what they were saying is that it is a craft. And if you're going to call yourself a songwriter, you should respect the craft. And it's it's work. It's not just capturing that, that inspiration, but it's, uh, you know, the best work is done in the... Um, you know, the editing phase, right? You you got to ruthlessly edit and always try and make a song better. Whereas I was always kind of loving like, hey, this is a song as it came to me, right? Who am I to mess with it? And if it's not good enough, you know, then I'll stick it to the side and I'll do the other one. And they were all like, no, anything, you know, if you've got a good idea, if you've got something that can be good, you've got to respect the song and um and work at it so that was kind of uh, a change in my approach to songwriting right right around there so what do you what's your process then of crafting a song and how often do you sit down with the guitar or or whatever you use is it maybe it's just pen and paper in your mind what transpires how often do you do it is it something you think about during the day um, maybe when you're you're working and then when you have a moment in the evening or maybe before you get up to do your whatever job you do, you, you write it down. What's the process now? Yeah, after? yeah good, good question. And, and it depends. And I, I wish I would, you know, um, it, it's always a goal to do a little bit, to do this part a little uh, better, to make time. Um, Again, Jonathan says he gets up at five o'clock in the morning before his house starts moving and he gets on a typewriter where, you know, you can't erase and just 
breaks, whatever, whatever flows. And then he'll go back uh, later in the day and look at it and see if anything jumps out of him. He uses a typewriter. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and that's intentional to, um, you know, and you can do that using ink on a page, but, but the idea is to not, you know, during the creative phase, you're creating. So you, you want options, you want lots of ideas and you can't, you know, you don't want, want to be questioning something during the creative phase. You just want to kind of like get it out and, and you write it all down and, and don't look back. And then as you're, as you're looking back and trying to figure out what resonates and what goes together, or what might work. And then as it starts to turn into a song, then, then you got to put, put on the school marm glasses and, and ruthlessly edit it. So I, I wish I had done, I wish I would be getting into a routine where I'm doing that and setting aside time, but it's more just like you say, where when an idea comes, whether it's during the workday or something, I'll, you know, either I'll throw a lyric into a little, you know, I keep a notes, use a little notes app to take, um, you know, text notes, or I'll hum a vocal melody in, into the phone. And then later in the day, when I take the guitar out and, I, and I'm playing around, I try to match those two things up, you know, um, a new chord progression or a guitar lick with, and then I'll, I'll say, Hey, that's, that's cool. That might, that might work. Is it happy? Is it sad? You know, I'll look through my kind of collection of partial lyrics and see if something resonates. Now, is it a frustrating process for you or is it a fun process? It's always, yeah, it's, it's frustrating until you get something going and then it's fun and then when you have the idea that something could be good, that's kind of when the anxiety sets in. We're like, I don't want to, don't want to screw this up. <laughs> I think our our buddy, I think you know Jason Hannon. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he he and his wife Michelle. He he just posted something on Facebook where he said, "Hey, songwriters, you ever get an idea where it's." Like really good, and you start worrying about whether you're going to do it right. And I'm like, all the time. Now, when you say when you question yourself that way, or he, like he did, do you ever th wonder if you get it right? Are you meaning that from your own standpoint, or from what other people might think? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm my first judge. I, I don't really think about what might what other people might. Think. I, I think I've gotten to the point now where I have a pretty good feel if, um, you know, if, if I'm writing, if I'm writing something good or not. Um, and it's funny to look back at all the stuff, you know, the first songs I wrote 20 years ago or something. After everyone, you know, it's, you know, every completed song is something to, to celebrate, to feel good, good about. So I've never finished one and thought, wow, that's a clunker. But, you know, a little bit of time after that. And and um, if it's not good enough, that, that's apparent. Now you have how many, I haven't actually counted here. I've got the, uh, by the way, I'm, for those of you who are listening to the show, if you're curious to listen to more of the cuts on the CD or you'd like to order one, 
which is what I would suggest, or at least download it, you can go to fromthedirt.hearnow, H-E-A-R now.com, fromthedirt.hearnow.com. Listen to the tracks. You can then go right to Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon, Pandora, or Deezer. Or you can just contact Dan directly, and he may or may not give us his, his email address, but you could always contact me. Many of you know me, so I could always put you in contact with him. But let's see, you've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 cuts on the CD. Right. That's 11 out of how many songs you've written? Oh, geez. I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I've said recently, I probably have, you know, um, you know, maybe 30 to 40 keepers, right? And probably uh, I've written three or four times that, right? And some of those that I don't consider um, keepers are, are fun to throw out every every now and then. But, um, you know, I like to think of um, uh, it being different gates that a song has to pass through, you know, like you play it for the dog. Right? <laughs> and if, if, if the dog doesn't, you know, the dog walks out on you, you know, um, Hey, Hey, you completed one, something to celebrate, but maybe that's not it. Then you can play it for the, you know, the family or a small, um, open mic or, you know, a certain type of gig, but then there's the more, high profile stuff and, and a song might be good enough to pass, you know, the first couple gates and not be one that you're going to bring out, um, at a bigger gig or something or, or to make the album. Now, do you find it nerve wracking to perform a song, whether it's an open mic or a showcase or any, but any type of performance where there are people sitting in front of you and listening, do you find it nerve wracking to perform that live for the first time? The first time, absolutely. And, um, you know, I try not to, to cheat to, you know, print out lyrics or to have it on the phone. Because if I do that, once you look down, once I look down once, like, uh, you know, it's just that first part of the second verse that I, I always forget. So let me, so, you know, let me scroll to that part of it and have it ready in case I need to look down. If it's the first time, and then I look down, then, I, then I'm tied. It's a crutch. You know, I can't look away. I'm like, it changes the mindset. So I, what I try and do is look up and find the lyrics in the rafters, mm-hmm. you know, or the clouds. And if not, you know, the big deal. But yes, it is nerve wracking to do a new one the first time. Well, you have a very unique guitar style. Um, and I have always referred to it as sort of like Celtic um, it's not really, but it is the closest I can come up with as a, a description to it. And it's not necessarily rhythmic, although it is in its own way. Do you find it difficult? Cause I would, I have, I can strum fine. I can finger pick in a rhythmic sort of way so I can sing to it, but I cannot play individual notes like you do. Do you find that difficult to play and sing at the same time, or have you been doing it long enough? It's just second nature to you. Yeah, no, I I find it I find it natural. Um, I always w- wish I could finger pick, um, and I can't. You know, do that that alternating thumb. You know, so um, 
I try and uh, that's why I, I, I do the flat pick and I try and, you know, let those basements ring out and then, you know, arpeggio or hammer on stuff. I was just trying to make stuff, you know, the, the music has got to be interesting as well as the lyrics for me. So, you know, a song with the most perfect lyrics where it's just over, you know, the same drumming pattern. You know, I, I always wanted to add, um, you know, the, 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 you know, these little things you can do with the, with the guitar um, to add a little bit more to it. Now, I found that interesting, like playing with, uh, with Jeff Karn, my partner in crime from the dirt, where he's a great mandolin player. And he's in, uh, you know, he's in half a dozen other bands. And I'll watch him playing with one of his other bands. He pl- plays with uh, Michelle Murray. Yes. Right. And uh, she's got a bluegrass band called No Part of Nothing. And, uh, you know, she plays guitar and writes the songs and sings. And he'll say, you know, Jeff, you sound better with Michelle than you do with me. And what she'll do when he's taking a solo is just play very simple kind of vanilla stuff. And she's given him room. And so sometimes I worry that the, um, the stuff I've done to make the guitar more interesting for my solo isn't as suited for a duo. So I think we're, we're still trying to figure out the best way for us to, to combine as we play. Well, when you first began to play with him, did you find yourself modifying the way you played or... Are you kind of doing that now? I, and I know you probably can't get together as often as you'd like, like many of us during this time, although it seems to be hopefully getting a little bit better. The, yeah. um, was, was that difficult? Because I find, because I'm a soloist most of the time, and I'm, I mean like most of the time, the few times someone has played with me, I, I realize I'm altering the way I play to fit them in, which means... Sometimes I forget where I am, if that makes any sense. Sure. Sure. No, I, I think I do a little bit, but um, I mean, he's really the, you know, he's the adult in the room when it comes to music. I've, I've never been able to um, play well uh, with, you know, with others um, on the guitar. I, I've always found it, you know, I, I, I love, Bands where where they do that. I grew up on you know Zeppelin and Rush and Crosby, Stills, Nash and all, and all that great stuff. But I've never been good at it. And he has got such great instincts where he makes it easy for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I I do think I've modified my playing a little bit when when I'm with him. Now the album was interesting because we don't really have that. Um, you know, I, I don't have that kind of rhythmic identity on the guitar. We deliberately kind of simplified the guitar in, for, uh, you know, doing it in the studio. And I was wondering if you picked up on that. You always talk about, like, how I play live. I was wondering if you noticed that in the guitar on the recorded. I didn't the first couple times I listened because I listened to the completeness of a song. I don't even pick out the lyrics unless one really jumps at me because I'm listening to everything kind of, you know, like, like in a bubble. 
but the more times I listen to it, the more I start picking apart the guitar part or the mandolin part or the vocal and the lyrics specifically. And yes, I could tell, but I figured, just like you say, that that was probably due to the production side of things. So that brings up a question. How did you record, and I'm sure some songs are different than others, but did you do a scratch track where you sing and played at the same time so everyone kind of knew what the song was, or did you just track the guitar first and then add other instruments and then add the vocal later? How did you go about doing it? Right. So, you know, we did this remote, and, um, you know, I was looking around for somebody to, to do it with, and um, the advice I was getting from everyone, um, Rob Hinkle and, and others were like, well, what are the CDs you like to listen to? And a lot of that was pointing me to this guy, um, Jerry Brown, down in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And um, so I reached out to him about working remotely. And he said he, he was he was down for it. And so we kind of walked through how we would do that and trade tracks back and forth. Um, and so in most of these you know, I would I would have some kind of a basement scratch recording of it already, and I would send to him so he would get a feel for it, and he'd give me a little guidance on what what he wanted. So I would um, kind of have it marked out um, in my home recording, and I'd have you know a uh, you know drum loops or um, or you know a metronome to play against, and I would do the guitar first, and then and then vocals and send them down to him. He'd add on. I would often come back and redo my guitar and vocals. But um, yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. It's good to do a scratch track where you play and sing the first time, like the first time through, just to, to mark out where everything kind of happens. And I'll, I'll often do that. I don't think I, I did that for, for this recording. Now, was that, I would think that would be difficult doing it remotely like that, where, well, first, you're comfortable because you're in your own space. That would be helpful. Um, if you're anything like me in a studio, I'm all uptight. You know, it's cold because it has to be cold because all of the computer stuff and like that. The um, It would be very nice to be in a comfortable environment, but the engineer's not in the next room or right across the table or there's no other musicians around. You've got family upstairs, the dog, and so forth. How difficult was that? It was. Uh, there were definitely pros and cons of doing it like this. Probably, just as you say, um, you know, you feel uptight. You go in there, you know, you're paying. You got somebody who's worked with super high-level musicians and, and like, all right, what am I doing here? Um, and so I was always very nervous about how that was going to go. You know, to, to kind of, you know, that anxiety of being able to perform on the day. So as far as that goes, it was kind of nice to, um, you know, do as many takes as I needed, again, where I'm comfortable to do it. And yet, you know, Jeff and I kind of missed out on a lot of the, the studio experience and playing with some of the great musicians that um, my producer, Jerry, was able to, to get on there. So there are definitely pros and cons how doing it remote well speaking of people who played on the tracks you've got um, mandolin orange 
Um, now, did both of them play or just uh, just the mandolin? Just the mandolin. So mandolin orange is primarily Andrew Marlin and then Emily Franz on um, vocals and fiddle. And so she's not, she's not on it. Andrew plays mandolin on several of the tracks. Um, Josh Oliver, their lead guitarist, plays lead on one. Um, uh, I think the other guys I had on the record, Joe Terrell, he's from a band called Mipso. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe McPhail, this wonderful kid on, um, on keyboards and drums. And um, the bass player, Alex Bingham, they all know um, Mandolin Orange and they, they've played together. So it was a lot of that same kind of team. And you also have Megan Lay, who's done some harmonies, and she's more local. Yeah, Megan is is wonderful. She's um, got a beautiful voice. Um, she's a, a new songwriter, mm -hmm. and like her first real song that she wrote, she won um, uh, the, the in the Mid Atlantic uh, Song Contest. She won. Um, I think she got a finalist or, or something for this acapella song, her her first one. And I'm wow. I'm like yay, yay for you. Yep. They're grumbling under my breath. My first, <laughs> I my, would my I, I would be too. Yeah, my first seventy five songs were awful. Yeah. You know, on the first one, great. And she's so a she's the duo partner for Eli Levy, right? For Eli Lev, yeah. right? Yeah, they're doing this wonderful project now, where it's really kind of—I don't—I don't, I don't want to call it, describe it the wrong way—avant-garde, um, pop, you know, indie pop thing where it just go—it's it, like nothing you, you've ever heard. Eli's more recent um, CDs have been fairly straightforward, kind of acoustic indie pop. And um, she did a tour with him, and, and it's good stuff. But they've, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard this song of theirs. I think it's called Icarus Rising. I saw it listed somewhere, but I have not heard it. Yeah, they're doing like a concept album or something, going down in Nashville occasionally. It's really cool stuff. So um, I had met her at a Saw event or a spinoff from a Saw um, event, just a, you know, a bunch of, people playing around a fire and she was singing harmonies on everyone's songs. And she sang on several of mine, including a mountainside and, and, um, and, uh, Kern river. And when it came time to record, I said, Hey, how'd you like to, and, and she jumped on. So that was great. Now was knowing that you were going to have, you know, people like members of, um, I've forgotten his name already, the fellow from Mandolin Orange and so forth. Did that, was that kind of a heady thing or was it more nerve wracking? I mean, you it weren't was, in the same studio with them, obviously, but they're going to be on the, on the music. Sure. And, and so in talking with Jerry Brown, the producer, he said, Hey, I think I'll, I think I'll be able to get Joseph Terrell. He's a wonderful guitar banjo guy. And I think I got Joe McPhail for keys and drums. You know, you'll love him. I'm not sure who else I'll, I'll, I'll get, you know, no promises, no, no, I can't promise any names or anything. I said, okay. And, um, this was a time where I was going into work periodically 
Um, and and so I I get into work, and uh, it was a day where he was having somebody, and so at work I'm kind of cut off, and so I, I'd be walking out. I have this long drive home, and um, I check my phone, and he would send me roughs of uh, you know rough mixes from the day's recording. And one time he sent me a video. It looked like he had recorded it with a potato. I, you know, terrible. I, I couldn't see what was going on. I'm like, what? And who's that? He's like, yeah, that's Andrew Marlin and Joe Terrell jamming on the day I hit the ground. So apparently Andrew just comes by to hang out. and says, what are you working on? And he said, okay, I can jump on this. And he, and he jumped in. Wow. I mean, that to me, that's what I call pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah, and and so it was pretty cool. But then I had, you know, I'm calling Jeff. I'm trying to get Jeff uh, in. You know, he's down in Montgomery County. I'm in Frederick. You know, we're trying to do the spacing and and everything. So I got him up to record a couple times, but um, you know, we were having trouble scheduling stuff. And yeah, you know, he's my mandolin guy. And he, I'm like, hey Jeff, I got a good news, bad news. Like, you know, I didn't plan to have the mandolin player from. And Lynn Orange playing on here, but he jumped on a couple tracks. Yeah, I can give him the boot, you know. But Jeff said, "No, no, that's you know." Now I just need to top him on the on the other track. <laughs> so I think he took that the the right way. Yeah. Well, you know, while we're while we're doing this, why don't we play people another cut? Let's do. You mentioned on the mountainside, and uh, and Megan is doing the harmonies in this one. Right. Okay, so we're gonna. We're going to play, we may not play the entire song, but folks, here's the cut on the mountainside. I came to America, 1859, and I landed in Black Mountain, under Carolina skies. Honest work, girls who sounded just like home. At night we'd sit under the mountain with the fiddle and the bowl. And though the days were hot, we were happy with our lot. As summer turned fall, we would sing. We could spend another night on the mountainside, the mountainside. Spend another night. On the mountainside Would you stay with me tonight On the mountainside The mountainside Stay with me tonight On the mountainside So when it was time to fight Before it was time to fear I sang my way to Charlotte With the Irish volunteers We couldn't shoot like them hill boys We were a waste of time but when it got up close and personal, we had no competition. So they threw us where it was hot, and we gave better than we got. At night we'd sing for all them yanks to hear. We could spend another night on the mountainside, the mountainside. Spend another night on the mountainside. Would you stay with me tonight on the mountainside, 
Question for you. How did you come about to write that song? Speaking about that specific one, how long ago, how long did it take you, and what gave you the inspiration for it? Ooh, I'm not sure I remember all that stuff, but um, this was one of those that did not come about through, you know, personal lyrics. This was one where I wrote it kind of straight in one sitting and um, made only minor changes afterwards um looking back i'm thinking it might have been influenced by um uh cold mountain have mm-hmm. you heard of that book yeah. or movie mm-hmm. yeah. charles i think it's mcdonald frazier yeah yeah wrote a song about a you know civil war soldier who ran and um um there's um there's that song Arrowhead. You know that folk singer? Um, yeah, there, there's, I mean, there, there's a couple songs out there um, that may have been circling around in my brain that I might have, um, you know, uh, used as inspiration. But once, like, the idea came in, um, just kind of uh, Richard Sindel is who I was thinking. Oh yes, of. yeah. Mm-hmm. Great song called called Arrowhead. About a young young boy um, to uh, to desserts. Um, but yeah, just just kind of wrote it in one sitting, and that was one of those where you're not sure where it's going or how how it's going to end, and then you know you write that next verse, and it and it takes a turn. And you're like, oh wow, like. Like, is this, you know, you know, maybe, maybe it took a darker turn than you thought at the, at the beginning, but, um, it just, it just seemed powerful. Now on, on, on this song specifically, were you just sitting and writing or were you playing the guitar and singing and writing at the same time? Right. So what I, what I typically do and what I'm pretty sure I did with this one is um i've got i've got the chord progression first and then once i have that i don't need to sit there and play it once i've got kind of the the rhythm the scan of the lines Mm -hmm. right then i'm just writing and what i'd like to do um is on the computer i'll just open a notepad this very basic uh text editor and just just right in there. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm breaking the rule of the typewriter or writing in ink because I can, I can delete and cut and paste, but I, I like to write in there. And this was just one of those. It just kind of came right out. Well, how did you go about picking these 11 songs from the 30 or 40 of what you consider the good ones? Right. And, and so we, um, in talking with Jerry, he wanted to he wanted to do tracking over uh, two weeks, and he's like, you know, we'll, we'll do half of it in one week and half in the other. So he's so we kind of talked through um, like what songs, and we were kind of um, we're solid on say the first uh, six 
or, or so, um, six or seven, I think. Those were always going to be on. And then it, you know, it was kind of consensus. Um, stronger, strongest songs I have. And then it was a question of, of um, you know, filling it out. And does a song as as odd as, you know, Voices in the Wood, Woods, does that make it on? Um, and like, um, so so there was a lot of, lot of shuffling in trying to figure out songs like eight through, you know, eight, nine, 10, and then maybe 11. Mm-hmm. But um, really the first seven were always gonna, gonna be on. Um, we have a couple songs that I think are stronger or stronger than, than any of these. And yet they're very specific, like Jeff Karn and I, playing live mm-hmm. songs where that that chemistry is a real important part of it and we couldn't you know we couldn't get that for this one this was going to be different this was going to be more of a studio with session musicians and so there were several that we just said hey we're going to save for the you know for for number two well that makes sense because then you have a an album or cd whatever we want to call it in today's world since our, our world is, is mainly digital right. is then, then you'd have a CD of songs. It may not be, I mean, it's obviously not going to be live in front of an audience necessarily, but it is as close to that as possible. And then you have your current CD bright against the blue, which is more of a, a studio production, even though you weren't actually in the studio all at one time. But that gives me, a, 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 I come up with a question here. What is your home studio like? What type of recording program and whatever? Sure. Um, so our, our mutual friend, uh, Fran, Fran Tucker, suggested um, a guy whose name is Todd. He has a, a studio called Echoes Recording out by Sharpsburg, I think. And I, I went and did a day there several years ago. Didn't know what I was doing. You know, did three songs in a day, and at the end of the day, I asked him, um, "Hey, what would you tell me to do different? How can I improve?" And he said, "You've you've obviously never been in a studio before. You you didn't know how to play to a click. Um, you know, you didn't do a lot of planning." And he's like, "It's, it's no, you're not bothering me. I'm getting paid by the hour, but you probably want to work your stuff out a little bit." Um, and the, the home studio that used to cost, you know, 10 grand at, at a minimum to be able to do anything has become really affordable, you know, um, in the last 10 years or so. And so he suggested um, a, uh, a, a company called Personas for a little inexpensive but high quality preamp. So that's a studio. Um, it's like, you know, it's an input your computer and it also came with a um you know a free version of their DAW, the digital audio workstation, um called Studio One. And so I, I have a Personas um interface and I use Studio One, you know, like Pro Tools or Reaper or Studio One's another one. And um I've just kind of built it up you know, slightly over time, you know, slightly better mic, studio monitors. Um, but it's really, it's not designed 
to to do great stuff. It's designed so that we can get it, get everything just about, you know, I can work out what I want to do when I go in a real studio. Now, do you work with a PC or a, a, an Apple product? I, I have a I have a PC. Yeah. Now, what mic are you currently using when you record? Right. So I had always just been using, um, you know, a 58 and a 57, mm-hmm. right? right, which is your good standard live thing. But um, in talking in a um, saw, you know, Songwriters Association of Washington did like a little community day thing and they had somebody from the studio kind of, you know, he was he was plugging his own place, but he was also answering a lot of questions. And um, and I asked him, I'm like, hey, this is what I have. What, like, you know, if you had to recommend one thing, you know, to complement what I have now, what would it be? You know, inexpensive. And he suggested a a large diaphragm condenser mic. And he gave me three or four, and I got one. So I I have one kind of good mic. It's a Rode NT1. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, And that's, so I basically... I think I used that for everything on this project, guitar and vocals. Well, it, it sounds, now you recorded it dry and then in the studio, the, he added, like Jerry added, if he wanted reverb and things like that. So you recorded everything dry and sent it to him or did you color some of it? Oh, he didn't want my amateur fingers touching (laughs) anything. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I recorded it just dry and sent to him. And what he, what he has, he has a lot of analog outboard gear that when he's recording, it's colored as it comes in, you know, somewhat. And then he does, you know, he does a limited amount of stuff with um, Pro Tools. And, um, and then, he, you know, he'll run an effects loop out and, and back in. But what, what he did with what I sent him, was basically run it out and then back in through a lot of his outboard stuff. So it's sure. not quite the same, you know. Um, it was probably sonically, like from an engineer perspective, the biggest thing that was missing from my stuff was, which was the vocals weren't recorded in, you know, an acoustically treated room. Sure. Right. So, uh, but, you know, he made it work. And, um, now, when you record in the future, is he someone you would like to record with in his studio, or would you do it uh, remotely again, like you're, you're, you've done this one? Oh, I think when we are done with COVID, we are um, done with the Zoom, done with the remote. Jeff and I have talked, we've been talking since, since we did this, that we want to get the full studio experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the stuff we want to do, you know, we, we want to do two other projects. We want to do three things. First, we want to go play a couple hundred gigs together. And then we want to do like a, a quick and dirty, like a live album, like a good recording of us live, maybe with another musician or two. And then we want to do a real from the dirt studio album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are kind of like our little goals. One, two, three. Now, going to your musical background, when did you first get involved with music? At what age? How did it happen? And then work us forward. Huh. So, um, 
you know, as a kid, my brother and I, um, we played instruments. We had the little Casio keyboard that I, I think we still have. I might even still have lying around. And just trying to figure out, you know, I was so good on the piano. I only needed two fingers mm-hmm. to play anything. But I would always try and figure stuff out by ear. I played the trumpet in elementary, middle, and high school, jazz band, marching band. I was never that great at it, never tried anything else. Got to college, and my roommate or sweet mate had a, had a guitar, an electric guitar, and an amp, and I was hooked. I think um, yeah, anytime he was out, I would put on... I think I learned to play, um, playing to uh, "Wish You Were Here," the uh, oh yeah, Pink Floyd album, and um, I had a Rush CD or two. So that's how I learned guitar. Now, when um, when did you get your first your first guitar? Yeah, um, I actually found uh, the receipt in a box not too long ago. Um, and it was uh, around 92 or so. I, I bought a, um, an old Yamaha acoustic. And I had a real, real dirt cheap electric and a crappy little uh, PV amp. Um, so er, early 90s. Now that Yamaha is probably this, the guitar that I saw you play at the now defunct Frederick Sellers when we did... We did. I can't remember whether it was a, a benefit we did or whether it was a Thursday night, you know, kind of an open mic or whatever. But I seem to remember maybe the the strap button broke or something like that on that. Or am I thinking of somebody else? No, that's it. The strap button broke, and I think you fixed it. You took it for a couple of days and, and fixed it for me, and I, I still have it. Oh, my, good. My my baby, my Martin, is actually in the shop getting a crack repaired right now. So acoustically all I've got is that is that um that Yamaha. Um now now I wanted to be an electric guitarist. I wanted to be Jimmy Page, right? And so uh I took lessons from somebody in my favorite local band at the time. You might have heard of him, uh Ben Sherman. Oh yeah. Yeah, I listened to your podcast with him and uh I remember him saying on your podcast that, hey, yeah, everybody improves. Uh, I, I think he might have not remembered me because <laughs> I was awful at electric lead guitar when I started. I was awful when I, you know, uh, getting to the lessons with him more, it was a bit of a drive for me. And um, you know, I just, yeah, I just stopped that at some point. But those were the only guitar lessons I, I ever took. Now, when did you kind of decide that the acoustic guitar was going to be your main source of music to sing to and not electric? Was it during that time? Uh, no. So after that, yeah. So, so that's all the 90s. And then 2011, um, I don't know if I had a bonus at work or something, but uh, I had a couple bucks and I was going to go treat myself to a good guitar whether it was a Strat or a Tele or a PRS, so I, I didn't know. But I went down to Chuck Levin's, you know, in, in Whedon, and um, I sat and played electric guitars for, for an hour. And I was bummed 
because I was not feeling it. Right? I'm like, ah, I'm awful. You know, all these guys around me are making them sound good, but what am I doing? And um, I wasn't going to get one. And I was walking out, and they have this beautiful, in a glass enclosed acoustic room, you know, like beam of light shining. You're like, ah. So I'm like, okay, I'll take a look. And I went in there and I picked up, you know, a Martin D18 or a D28 or a HD28 and started playing. I was like, wow, this is different than the Yamaha. Mm-hmm. And I walked out of there with, with my D28 2011 and um, I just, I, th- I think I kind of came into my identity um, on guitar kind of shortly after that, just playing that Martin. Well, you have a wonderful way of playing and you have a wonderful delivery singing while you're playing that, but you're also a very clever lyricist. And do you, I know that you said on the mountainside, you wrote kind of start to finish the, but are you constantly trying to come up with groupings of words that just take people someplace or take you somewhere else, but get the point across sort of, but leave a little bit of question mark there, there so that you're not telling the story literally, you're kind of giving it hints or bullet points. That's, that's probably simplified it way too much. How do you go about that? Yeah, no, there, there's a lot in that question. One is, you know, avoiding the cliche or the mm-hmm. obvious rhyme, which I do try and do, you know, um, I mean, everyone's done, you know, Bruce Springsteen's a great writer, but he's got a song where he rhymes fire with desire, yep. you know, it's like, all right, <laughs> enough already. All right. So I, I do try and avoid the obvious, you know, um, thing. I, I do try and look for that, that twist. And then sometimes that twist, I'll, I'll take the song in a, in a, in a new direction. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, the, the point of, you know, the, the point of music is to convey, or the music, the music I like, the music I want to create is to convey emotions, right? So, so I'm, I'm just trying to put stuff out there that, that will resonate and whether it, you know, whether it applies to your life or not, or, or whether you could feel yourself in that situation. You know, I just want to, you know, I just want to break your heart. Um, Is there any autobiographical references in your songs or is it pretty much just as, as we say made up? Yeah. Now there's, there's a little bit of me in everything probably, Mm -hmm. but there's nothing I don't think I've ever written and it's pure autobiographical because no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I love the songwriters like Mary Gaucher who who can do that, who's had an interesting life and you know, singing that truth and all that. But um but you know, my, mine is a lot of imagination and um you know, um empathy, you know. Mm-hmm. Like what if what if that was what if that was me? What if I was there? That kind of thing. Well, a good example 
And the reason I asked the question was the song Winter Cabin. It almost sounds like you reminiscing as if you're chatting with a significant other or a family member. And, you know, and you're basically saying, hey, remember in 1992 when we stayed in the cabin? So it does, and, and what it does for me is it conjures up memories of either someplace I visited or maybe there was a place that we went on a regular basis. And again, whether it was a significant other or just a good buddy or family members. So you did that extremely well because here I'm thinking you were reminiscing. Oh, sure. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's the show, you know. I mean, that, that song, it, it's probably a common theme where, you know, uh, I think my wife makes fun of me. A lot of my songs are, are like, we used to have a thing and now we don't have a thing. <laughs> right. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm 50, I'm happily married and all that. And your twenties are, are an emotional time. Right. Um, uh, so, so I think a lot of these are like, in winter cabin is certainly hey we were really living back then remember that and you know the end of that song is you know 12 years later on the evening train to another night alone and i'm half awake i dreamt the smell of your wilderness hair you know like we were not showering and we didn't care you know yep um so yeah but that's, you know, it's poetic in its, its, its way. It's not the way most people would. Most people who write either poetry or songs, and when I say most people, people who are not necessarily serious at it, they wouldn't say it that way. You know, that's the type of writing that pulls me into a novel. I can usually tell in the first sentence of a novel whether I'm really going to enjoy it or not just by, you know, the way the words are put together. And that, that's a, and that's a, a common theme in you most, in all, all of your songs really is the, I'm, I'm kind of hooked to pay attention very quickly. And it sometimes is the, what you're playing on the guitar. Cause I've heard you mostly solo. I've heard you with Jeff, but most of the times I've heard you solo. It's either, the guitar, what you're playing, because you play so differently than I do, or it's the lyric. It's like, oh, where's this going? You yeah, Matt, I remember you mentioning one time, I think it might have been Matt on the side, where you're like, that's the first time I've listened to the ending. I didn't realize yeah. that's what happened. Uh, um, yeah, no, I, I love medicine with language. You know, as, as a kid, I loved um, Michelle Silver, Bill Silverstein. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was you know, just, just wonderful language. And, you know, um, Patrick O'Brien, the, you know, the Aubrey Matron books, uh, you know, Mastering Commander, you know, the movie, but they're, they're just one wonderful language. Right. And so I, I, you know. Now, did you study English or writing or literature? What, what's your, what was your, what did you study in, in, in your, you know, college yeah. years yeah i was a physics major boy that's that's darn close to writing songs right, right. <laughs> yeah no i i don't know i think my, my father was a computer science major and he wanted to be a he wishes he was a history or english major and um 
you know, maybe I'm the same. Um, yeah, no, I, I wasn't good at physics. I didn't realize that until later. Um, I was I was never going to get an advanced degree in it. And with a bachelor's in physics, all you can do is manage a restaurant. <laughs> I remember um, one of my professors calling me and a couple of my buddies and saying, right now, physics PhDs can't get jobs in physics. You guys will never get jobs in physics. And he was right. Well, how did but, that make you feel at that time, though? Well, it was a relief to hear the truth because I, I knew uh, the moment he said that, I was like, he's right. What am I doing? It's like I almost kind of felt trapped um, in, that, in that. So I ended up transferring um, and doing mechanical engineering, which was um, much, much easier. Yeah. Or, right. Um, and, and uh, you know, I've enjoyed what I've, what I've done professionally. I, I think. You know, but studying physics is was cool because it gives you, you know, um, a way to to look at the at the world. You you see, you know, you see a problem and you want to creatively problem solve, mm-hmm. and that, that's what I do professionally, and that's what I try and do in in music. Like life is about, you know, have an idea for what might happen, and then you do the experiment, and then you try and figure out what what went wrong. Yeah, that's my, how my, my life goes, and that's basically a, you know, how you, you do a physics experiment or write a song. Well, you're doing a great job with it, and what is your future like? Once we get rid of this whole virus thing, what do you hope for your for Dan Kenny's music like life to be? Right. Yeah, I, I want to. You know, I wanted to get this done the, the pandemic started and i was like you know i've been putting this off for so long i'm gonna scratch my nose one day in a grocery store and two weeks later i'm gonna be on a ventilator and be like crap i never get the album done so i'm just gonna do it even if uh, uh, even if it's remote so i really wanted to get that done feel a real sense of relief at, at how it how it turned out but yeah what to, what to do now um i mean jeff and i were just talking before you called and we want to do like um we want to play festivals we want to do house concerts you know so so what i want to do later this year is play out more i love open mics you know but i don't want to be an open mic warrior Mm -hmm. i want to start playing gigs with the duo and then i want to expand the circle of people that that we play with and um, be able to play, you know, like a five-piece in a bar or a duo or a solo in a living room and just kind of see, you know, see where we can go with it. Well, you've made, I, I still am amazed. I don't know if I mentioned it early in the conversation when you said that you did this remotely. I am amazed that musicians and engineers can combine all this music from different parts to make it sound like everyone was there. If you know what I mean. And I mean, I understand that in many instances, the players, the guitarist, the drummer, and they don't, they're not in the studio many times at the same time. They come and they go and, and the engineer puts them all together. But the fact that you did everything and you're the 
you're the center point of the, the whole, of every one of these songs, you and Jeff, but you specifically because you're the songwriter and you're the lead singer. The fact that you could do that from the comfort of your own home to email it off to Jerry and Jerry could put it together to come out with such a wonderful sounding CD just blows my mind. Well, thanks, Todd. Um, yeah, yeah, Jerry, Jerry was fantastic. And and he didn't know how this would go. He had never done something like this. Um, uh, you know, with, with so much of it done remotely either. So we were both figuring stuff out. I think he took it easy on me, um, and didn't necessarily charge me for all of the, Sometimes he had he had a frustrating time trying to line something up. Like I told you to start on the first four clicks, and then it would mess, you know. And if I didn't do something right, he had to figure out um, how that lined up with with other stuff. But uh, yeah, we figured it out, and and Jerry's phenomenal. You you just look at the the people he's um, he's recorded there. He's done Doc Watson and Lucinda Williams. Carolina Chocolate Drops and Rhiannon Gibbons and Jonathan Bird and Mandolin Orange, and, you know, so. So you're in good company. Are you still with me? I am still with you. Yeah. You, I, what I said was you're in good company with all those people. You're part of the, when he rolls the credits, basically, of his studio from the dirt, Dan Kenny is going to be right in there with everybody else. That's cool. I'm sure it's going to jump right to the top. <laughs> well, just, you just have him call me and he and I'll have a discussion and you'll just kind of, I'm sure just kind of work your way right up to the front of the line. Yeah. I have a, a quick question. You were talking about, uh, when you did the recording over in, uh, wherever it was, Shepherdstown or whatever, and the fellow says, you, you know, you don't have much recording studio experience. How long did it take you to learn to play to a click track? Yeah, that that is, it was almost like, you know, the first couple attempts at songwriting were awful. That at first, you know, I'm not sure if I kept any recordings from the first year or two. I know others picked that up a lot faster. Um, but uh, but it was probably pretty bad for a while. But I think I've I think I've gotten to the point now where um, where I I can do it, and feel pretty comfortable doing it. I even right before the pandemic had a you know a buddy or two over and recorded like other people's songs mm -hmm. and, and and I offered that I'm like hey you know come on over for free I'll learn you'll get at least something rough you know um. But did you meet my buddy Nick Wisniewski? Yes. Yep. Yes. Guy with a wonderful voice. He he came over and did one. He put vocals on an earlier one of mine. That's more of a poppy song, just for just for grins. And then he recorded one of his. I, I thought turned out really well. Here and I, I've had Wally, Worsley. Oh yeah. And, uh, John Lawden over. Uh, I think to play on. You know, where I needed a guitar solo or some guitar parts on, on on some of my stuff, that was fun to do. So looking forward to doing more of that too. I haven't seen Wally Worsley since basically since the pandemic hit and everything had to shut down because I used to see him at making music, and of course he's not there now. So, right. Well, he's got a baby. I don't know if we'll see him again. He's 
uh, he's turned from rock star to the uh playing with blocks so. <laughs> hey you know something I played with blocks a lot when I was a kid, and I loved it. So I'm hoping he's having a fun time with it as well. Yeah, he seems to be. Well, this has been fun, Dan. Now, oh, tell everybody how they can get a copy, whether it's the download version or whether they can get a you know, physical copy of the, of the music. Sure. So I've got, you know, I've got a few hundred CDs, so you can, you can hit myself or, or Jeff Karn up when you see us. Um, the band's website is from the dirt band.com. Um, and from there, there are links to, to everything. I don't have the, um, the store on the band website. So um, there is a contact. You can, you can email me. Um, you, you can do like Fran did and we can do the do a Venmo or a PayPal and I'll, I'll mail the CD if um, I can't wait till when we see each other but I, I plan on being around town with a with a box of them and then of course you can go and stream so you can find it everywhere on uh, you know, Spotify and Apple Music you mentioned it's funny when you do the distribution they, they list these 20 other things you've, you've never heard of. I had never heard of uh, Deezer. I had never heard of Deezer either. And when I, uh-huh. I, I started to say it, I went, geez, I don't know if I should. I don't even know what it is. Right. So it must be yeah. some sort of a platform. It, it is. You can, they push it to TikTok too. So that's all I need. Get a couple of these, uh, get a couple of Gen Z's doing TikToks to some of these and then it'll blow right up. It will. Now, how did you come up with the title, Bright Against the Blue? Right. So that's that's a line from the day I hit the ground. Okay. Uh, it's at the beginning and end of that. I've always liked that that line. Now, is there a reason why the against the is in cursive and bright and blue is not? I had... um. A good dude, his name is uh, F.J. Venter. Um, he's a graphic artist. He's a bass player. He plays like rockabilly stuff. He did the design, and I didn't, you know, when you hire a pro, you get out of the way. And that's how he did it. <laughs> and I thought it looked pretty cool. It does. I'll, I'll, I'll tell him you asked, though, and I'll let you know what he says. And it, it could be just him sitting going, I wonder what that looks like. Oh, I like that. Sometimes that's all it is. Yeah. It's almost like writing a line and not knowing where the next line is going to go and just something pops out and you go, oh, that really has nothing to do with what I was thinking about, but it sounds kind of cool. And it ends up being in the song. Yeah. So I hope everyone gets a chance to to order the CD or at least listen to it. I'm going to play one more tune once Dan and I finish the conversation. And it's actually the first cut on the CD called Let's Go Home. And now tell me a little bit about that song. Yeah, so um, I need a new intro for that because I tend to say, hey, the song is about the intersection of family and Oxycontin. Mm. And, that, and that'll often you know, get a laugh and then it's, it's a serious song. That's another one of those where I wasn't sure where it was going. And then the, the first line of the second verse is, you know, it's little brother with big brother. 
out there in the woods. And then the second verse is, you know, I crushed those first pills with you. And, and I wrote that. I was like, wow, where's that's a, that took a turn. Didn't see that in the first verse. And so, it, it you know, you, you don't need too many degrees of separation to to find somebody who's um, been impacted by the opioid crisis. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what it's about. Well, we're going to play that as soon as you and I hang up, but I want to thank you so much for joining me. This has been fun. I have missed seeing you and seeing others during this past year, and we are pretty much at the one-year mark of when everything shut down, hopefully by, and I know there's going to be some outdoor music coming up once we get, it's warm enough that people can actually sit out and not uh, either sit on wet grass or whatever, but uh, hopefully I'll get to see you in person soon. Todd, uh, I miss you, buddy, and I, I miss, you know, that, that Frederick music community. You know, we lost a, a member, Mike Mike Soto's, yeah. recently, and that's a, that's a shame. It is. Um, yeah. Well, but, th- um, yeah, looking forward to seeing everybody soon. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a great evening, and crossing my fingers, we get to see you, see each other again soon. Thanks so much, Todd. Take All right, care. Dan. Bye-bye now. Well, that was Dan Kenny of From the Dirt, talking about mainly his songwriting, his song crafting, and the songs from Bright Against the Blue. And we're going to finish the show with the song he was just talking about. And this is one where, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I listened to the completeness of the song without necessarily listening specifically to the lyrics. So when he described that second line, I need to listen a little more closely to Let's Go Home. of those summers hang about me like freighters honeysuckle radiance from the days when we were grown carved your name into that oak tree hung a rope swing from the willow your little brother and his hero till mama called us home let's go home first I'll race you to the river let's go home Linger on the way Let's go home I can hear mama calling us Come safely home At the close of day Yeah, I crushed those first pills with you Though I barely even sniffed it Closed my eyes and drifted When I came back down to land That high that we were chasing Hell, it messed me by a mile I saw that devil smile as you shook him by the hand. In the years between your absence, you told tall tales to my daughter of two brothers by the water with the earnestness of prayer. But you were hidden this at Christmas. Thanksgiving, we were witnesses to your photo on the mantle just beyond your empty chair. Let's go First I raise you to the river Let's go home Can't linger on the way Let's go home Can't you hear mama calling you Come safely home
destroyed by the river telling stories. Our old town is territory, flowers shining like flame. We could see proud and bold, shirtless, loud and laughing. We carved the ear of your passing underneath your ageless name. Let's go home, first I'll raise you to the river. Let's go home, we can linger on the way. Let's go home, can't you hear my daughter calling you? I'm safely home, let the clothes come, safely home, come safely home. The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Catch us again next time.